Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue Emergency Medicine Residency. What we've got for you today is an additional podcast onto the usual core content. This is the full-length version of a Grand Rounds talk we got from Andy Slows. Andy's well-known for the PEM-ED podcast, one of the few PEDS EM podcasts that's out there. Andy's an assistant professor of emergency medicine and pediatric emergency medicine down at Vanderbilt. So we were lucky to have him up to give Grand Rounds, and here he talks about the care of infant and neonatal emergencies in the emergency room. All right, so honestly, how many of you guys have been involved in a pediatric code like that, right? If you haven't, then you haven't been doing it long enough, more than likely. We tend to get all freaked out. It's a kid. It's Cody. Oh, my gosh. What do I do? But honestly, the physiology is in your favor, and I want to tell you that. So Richie Cantor, just up the street, it's one of his favorite, famous quotes. The physiology is in your favor. It takes a lot for you to kill a kid. It really does. And it takes a lot for them to die, which is good news. So if you just calm down and remember what you've learned, you're going to do absolutely fine. These are the obligatory objectives. But the objective really is that I can't duck. I wish I could duck. When I was in high school, I would have cut off a very important appendage to be able to duck. And I knew it was never going to happen. But I realized if I lowered the bar, if I lowered the goal to eight feet, I too could duck. And that's almost always what neonatal emergencies are. If you can lower the bar and remember what you've been trained to do, then you're going to be absolutely fine. So I have the voice of the Pending Podcast. This is fantastic. I say this not as an advertisement, just a disclosure. I take no money for what I do, and I do things like that. If I make like this, if I make any money, I give it all to tithe and charity. Christian guy. I take all my money from the University of Vanderbilt. All right, I use a lot of sound in my lectures. Who's this? You guys from New York, you should know this. Yeah, the Misfits, that's right. American Psycho. Perfect, Probably. She's a beautiful young lady. She's been doing it for a long time. And she came up with this mnemonic to remember all the things that can go wrong with a child. We're going to go through these fairly rapidly because we have an hour. But it really is not that hard to remember. If you're going to remember one thing about kids, I would commit this algorithm. Let pals go. Let everything else go. Because you guys are great doctors. You're fantastic. If it was me or my kid in a major trauma, the last words out of my mouth are take me and him to the adult trauma center. Because you do critical care better than any pediatric emergency medicine doctor I know because you do it all the time. You're very good at procedures. Just apply the same stuff you know to kids and you will be okay 99% of the time. I guess actually before I say that, I should ask how many peace people are in the room? Sorry, I love you guys. <laughs> but you have to admit that they do procedures more than you and that's what I mean. You guys know kids, they know procedures. And that's what I mean. Okay, so let's start off with the first T. T for tumor. The most common extracranial neuroblastoma. What's the most common cancer we see in kids? Yeah, it's a lot of blue. What do you think that is? Yeah, right? So that's what we see, ALL. <laughs> it's really, really, really common. Seems like in Texas Children's, when I was there, we said everyone has ALL. Seemed like we made a diagnosis a shift, which is unfortunate. But the good news is it's really easy to cure. So if you have to get cancer in the, in the childhood period, I'd say this is one of the ones you would choose. How do we work it up? These are the labs that are going to tell you that you need. Do you really need all these labs? Do you need a uric acid and LDH? I don't know. I'll tell you, if they're really, really sick, you probably do. Because when do we see uric acid and LDH go through the roof? Come on. 
yeah, they do tumorize, so we actually go do the treatment. But if they're really, really sick, they have a huge, huge lymph or white cell burden, then they might already be turning over. So it's good to have a baseline to know if you need to start treatment early. Who understands chemo regimens and how long they're on? How long is a child on ALL with ALL on chemo? You guys know average. Three years. Three years they're going to be on chemo. And they're going to come in with their line and they're going to have a fever. We have to figure out what we're going to do. So it starts with induction. That's usually the inpatient part. We're going to give them chemo inpatient. They're going to be really sick because we're going to lice all those cells. Keep them inpatient. That's usually about three to four weeks. Then we go to consolidation phase. That's usually about two months. And what we do is we change the regimen. We try to get all the other cells that we didn't get with the induction phase. Sometimes they can be at home for that. Sometimes we bring them back from the hospital. Then we go to interim maintenance, which means we pretty much give the bone marrow a break for two months, give them the Christine methotrexate. Then we do delayed intensification. We go run and look for all those cells again, and we try to kill them, anything that's remaining. And then they go on maintenance, and maintenance is the two-year part. And that's when you see them more than likely. With their line in and they get a fever. When they have their line in and they get a fever, what do we do? We always do, we take this and give that. Take blood, do a culture, and give antibiotics. And then our scum's running out. Ah, give me, give me, give me. They just got ALL. What are we going to do? Why do they do that? What's the source of infection? They think it's the blood every time, right? Because you have an indwelling line. What are the chances it's actually the blood? It's almost always a cold. But when it is the blood and they're neutropenic, they get sick really, really fast. So if you're not, if you're going to give antibiotics kind of willy-nilly, this would be the one group I say don't argue with the hematology. It's just give the blood because they will get sick quick. LPs, what's high risk and what's not high risk? Anyone know what a high risk? You ever heard that term? I have an ALL kid and they're high risk. What does that mean? It took me forever. I got through the entire fellowship and I still I walked out the door, took my diploma. No idea what high risk means. The high risk means they have a high risk to not respond to treatment to potentially die. And the kids that do that are really young infants that get ALL, older kids that get AML, kids that have already failed and relapsed, kids on bone marrow transplant therapy or have had bone marrow, and then kids that have it in the spine. And those guys, unfortunately, are the 10% that may not make it through treatment. All right, let's do the next T is Trauma. This is one of my favorites because this can be the accident. I, I don't know. You guys see this in Bellevue? You guys get some motor vehicular trauma? Little. Mostly what, right? Tree. Trees. Lots of trees in New York. <laughs> Central Park. <laughs> uh -huh. All right. So we see a lot of this Texas, Florida, Kentucky, everywhere I've been. And this can be the car. Mom and the rest of the family are dead, and that's the child if they're in a car seat. It is almost impossible to hurt a child when they're in a car seat. Almost impossible. We should all be in car seats. We should be, man. Look at uh, Dale Bernhardt, right? He dies. They put everyone in NASCAR in a six-point restraint, and now no one's really died. We really should be. So when you see this kid and the rest of the family, I usually just take them out of their car seat and play with them a little bit. Because almost always they need nothing. Trauma surgeon comes running in. Got a CT. No, 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 no. We just need to let them play and go home, most of the time. Now, when you see this, what do you think happened to the child? What do you guys think? That's right. That's right. Yeah, they fell at the table. What do you think? You see this? Non-accidental, right? So supposedly 10% of the cases we see that you think are hitting the table are actually non-accidental trauma. So I'm going to encourage you to do this. Every child you see that's injured, you should write on your chart, abuse screen negative. And when you go to court, 
You can say a view screen negative means I went in, I used my gestalt of interviewing the patients to say, I really didn't think they were hurting the child. Okay? Because when you miss it and you do go to court, it's really, really hard to defend if you don't have something on there that you consider non accidental trauma. So please consider every injured child could possibly be hurt. All right, next T. Thermal injuries. Now, I was thinking about doing cold injuries, but it's not going to be cold here for a while. I used to wear a suit or something, like a jacket when I'm up here. I got it this morning. It's ridiculously hot. I'm not doing that. Kentucky and Tennessee, we have a lot of very, very funny rednecks. <laughs> and that sign locally appeared by that statue of something that I've got off in high school. Let's talk about heat injuries. That's probably a little more. My kid brother would want to take about the top. or your electrolytes are off. 
So you can get that by drinking too much water when you're hiking and you screw up your electrolytes, or you don't drink enough Gatorade when you're hiking. And then the, the treatment is, I get, this is the Army treatment. Now, I was a Marine. In our manual, we had nothing about stripping off your shirt and letting testicular sweat rehydrate your patients. I'm not, I'm not sure how that works. I think that still the right answer is to get fluids in them and get them in shape. The next, the next kind of on the spectrum is heat syncope. And that's just hot outside like today. You're not acclimatized to the, to the climate. And you walk outside, you get hot, you do a little more, you should, and you go to Florida. Do you know what DFOing is? Do DFO here in New York? Okay, when you're in the South, you DFO. You done fell out. You look at man, they done fell out, and DFO, I fell out. Like, what'd you fall out of? <laughs> so you DFO. Those guys are usually fine, unless there's some other stuff. I don't know, just made it, I DFO. Okay, you get to stay, sir. But everyone else gets to go home. And then there's heat exhaustion. And that's usually that you're just out in the sun too long, you've been working all day, you feel like you have the flu, you're miserable. Fluids, that one might require a little bit of workout, but they usually are under the magic 104, 105 temperature that you're looking for. Then there is heat stroke, right? And that's this guy. There's classic and exertional. Classic heat stroke, that's what I like to call the slow cook. You know if you put a frog in a pot of boiling water, what they do? Jump out! Just like you guys, I jump out in a pot of boiling water. But if you put a, pot, a frog in a pot of cold water and you slowly turn up the heat, you can cook them. They will not move. They're a cold-blooded animal and they will constantly readjust your temperature. I think you guys all kinds of stuff. Do you have frogs in New York? Maybe. No? <laughs> Central Park, right? Most of us in the Alright, so classic as opposed to exertional, which is like my wife and I are on a lot of half marathons, and we see these guys dropping. And we used to stop and have a little bit of time, so we stopped doing that. <laughs> No, but they do. They drop. They get hot. They're sweating. Classic is dry, slowly cooking. And exertional is I'm out running a marathon. I'm fully sweating. So if you ever see on your boards, which is a popular question, that the patient has potential heat stroke and they're dry, that's classic. Don't let them fool you. They might give you a real sweaty person. As long as they were out running doing something exertional, that can absolutely be heat stroke at 104 to 105 degrees. It's usually the temperature they're looking for. So 104, 105. What's the treatment? We've got to get the clothes off. We want to get them cold. So ice packs everywhere that you can, that's still a groin. But what if that doesn't work? Right? They make it to the emergency room. That's kind of what EMS is going to do. We need to do what? Yeah, get them in a bath or get them spritzed with some water, right? In a fan. Should be cold water or hot water? Maybe a little counterintuitive. It really needs to be warm or hot water. Something that's body temperature, tepid at least. If you put cold on them, they will shiver. They will absolutely shiver, and that works 100% against what you were trying to do. Drives up metabolism, uncouples electronic transportation, all that yada yada. All that matters is they will shiver, and they will get hotter. It harder to get them cooler. So fan and warm water is the boring answer and the real life answer. If that doesn't work, you've been told that you should probably do all of this stuff, right? This is the boring answer again. I'm going to put a Foley up for PP. I'm going to put it in cold water. I'm going to buy a lot of I'm going to put it in cold water. I'm going to pair it to Neil, too. I'm going to put it in cold water. But ah, no one's doing that anymore. That's crazy talk. Okay, my personal opinion. This is what we're going to do. You guys do this here? If you don't, you're probably going to transfer them. You do everything you can to stabilize them, but ECMO is the perfect way to control a child's temperature. And it's the fastest way to save this way, in my opinion. Lots of morbidity for putting in necessary tubes. So I get them to an ECMO center. Alright, let's do a couple of cases. They're all going to be very, very similar. 3DO presents with cyanosis and a possible seizure. Here's the Bibles, so pay attention. Remember, it's a three-day-old, so that actually might be a little high. Stats are a little low. They're cyanotic. 
Otherwise, we're pretty normal looking figures in the blue there. So. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. No, Will Robinson. Danger. Yes, danger. <clears throat> Every child that you see that you think is septic or tox, when you look at Gonzalez out of tumor trauma, thermal heart, endocrine, metabolic, inborn errors, metabolism, seizure, feeding disasters, intestinal disasters, toxins, sepsis. That's the demonic. You should be able to spit off at 3 a.m. so you don't have to think about it. She intentionally put toxins, sepsis at the end because we always think about that first. One in 500 kids, it's afebrile that presents to you in the first week of life as a heart problem. One in 500. These are the three, if you were someone asked you on a board question that would most likely to be missed on a fetal echo. And what's the treatment for all of them? If they come in in extremis. Uh, you got any two monitors, I'll give you that. What's the ultimate treatment? Prostaglandins, right? So keep that in mind as we go through this. But I will tell you, if you're an outside hospital, when you're done, what I want to know is this. Are they ductal-dependent pulmonary or ductal-dependent systemic? I'm going to tell you a real easy way to figure that out. <clears throat> because they're going to tell you that a kid who has heart problems has all of this stuff, right? That's the that's the list. Memorize that. That's good stuff. What's the kid with sepsis have? Same list. What's the kid with liver failure have? Same list. So how do we distinguish it, right? Well, they're going to tell you you need to do a workup. And the workup should entail all of this stuff. Chest x-ray, you can't I can go with that. And I'm going to want the chest x-ray for sure. Post-ductal sac. You guys know what that thing is? Post-ductal sac. That's a good one to know. So I'm going to do a sac pre-ductal. So we're talking about the, the ductus arteriosus, right? Pre-ductal, right hand. That's the blood coming up the arch before it hits the duct. And that sac should be pretty much whatever's coming out of the heart. Post-ductal, somewhere probably on the left foot is the usual. But check that sac too. Because if the kid has horrible pulmonary artery hypertension, which is a common, really uncommon diagnosis where their blood pressure, their pulmonary artery pressure stay up, they're going to think about, I got all this pressure in the lung, I'm the right heart is trying to push, but I got an open duct, that's an easy little pop-off out, I'm a happy little blood molecule, I don't want to go to stop pressure, I'm going to run over here to the, to the smaller pressure gradient. So I'm going to shunt from right to left through the heart, or through the duct. And then my sat down on my foot's going to be lower. So that's a great way to understand if you're actually shunting secondary to pulmonary problems. Hyperoxia test. Anyone know what that is? I won't call on you. Show hands. Anyone know? Great board question. Great board question. So if I have a, a duct, or I have this to any heart problem, and I can't get blood to the lungs, and I put the patient on 100% FiO2, you can do it by the chance way. Put up the nose, put them on a mask, you definitely have 100% FiO2. What should the PaO2 be? If I can't get blood to the lungs. Yeah, whatever it was before. 50, 30, if you're lucky, because someone's going. But if I can get blood in the lungs, what should the PO2 be? Yeah, 200, 300, whatever. Just like an adult. So if I put 100% FiO2 on for a couple of minutes and then check a blood gas, and I should be able to figure out if I'm getting blood to the lungs or not. Do I have a ductal pulmonary lesion or a ductal systemic lesion? You guys follow that? Okay, cool. So how many kids, people have done an ABG on a neonate? That sounds easy. Yeah, Swami, right? Yeah. I'll tell you some stories about Swami. <laughs> so I don't think so. That's a really tough thing. So we do a cap gas, which is easier to get. Probably not quite as accurate, but close. So I'm leaving it on there. You can do that. What you really need is a chest x-ray. And for me, an echo. But a chest x-ray, if I see this, am I getting blood to the lungs? No, right? If I see this, am I getting blood to the lungs? Yes. And what is this most likely? <coughs> Anyone know? 
I just gave you the three most common. Is it coarc, tricuspid atresia, hypoplastic blood ventricle? If I crimp down my aorta, which one am I likely to get? That, right? So if I crimp my aorta, all that blood's going to back up just like your 80-year-old CA Jeffrey. They'll come in huffing and puffing and sound really wet. What do they all need? doesn't matter. What do they all need? Prosperance. Why do I care? You call me from outside the hospital? I would love to know. Because one, I'm going to call up my CV surgeon and say, hey, you might need to take this one to the OR tonight. Or at least to ECMO. I can't get blood to the lungs. It's important. I can't oxygenate the patient. Okay? Important. Oh, CHF. I'm still getting some board flow. Pressure's not that bad. We might go do this in the morning. Follow? Savvy? Okay. All right. Use the false loop. Let go. Force is strong, Alright, so for me, ultrasound is the force. Alright? Undifferentiated sick baby is Darth Vader. And I'm going to pull out my lightsaber, which is my ultrasound probe, and I want to diagnose what's going on. I'm going to put it on the heart, put it in the IDC, and I'm going to get a lot of information. You guys follow? You guys using ultrasound here? Okay, we can skip through this if you know. But babies don't get hypotensive, right? Neither do kids. They will stay in cold shock. They will hold on until they give up the ghost. They will keep that afterload. Right? We all agree on that? So what do they get instead? Right, tachycardic. So it should be rushed. Very, very selfish adult ER doctors. We're getting to add that T on there. So rapid ultrasound of shock and unexplained hypotension and tachycardia. That's what I really want to diagnose. So every kid that is hypotensive, I mean, is tachycardic for any reason, even if they're gastro, so I'm going to put the ultrasound probe on. Let's just make sure IVC is full, no myocarditis, make me feel R warm and fuzzy. It takes me two seconds to go home. And then every now and then you're going to see this. Let's see, R-A-L-A, that's good, R-D-L-B, that's normal. Whoa, R-A-L-B, whoa, I'm missing something. What's that? I'm missing. Left ventricle. That's not good. Prostic landings, right? More than likely, unless you have a cardiac surgeon. But also, like I said, in the gastro patient, I've given them, you know, they drank and they've thrown up a little more, I gave them some more Zofran, they drank some more, but man, should I put the IV in? And they're nowhere near hydrated. They're not going to do it. Just put the IV in, let's admit that. <coughs> okay, so for me, I'm a very mathematical person. I'll tell you last thing I got in college for math. <laughs> and I love math. This is the easy way to remember things and I love things that I love in mind. So this is unarguably the formula for blood pressure. Whether it's an adult or a child, I want to think of it the same way. Blood pressure equals heart rate times cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance, period. And cardiac output is preload and contractility. And when I know that, I can memorize all that, but I already know what I'm looking for, as opposed to I'm just going to give a liter of fluids. So I walk up to the patient, I see if the heart rate is slow or fast. And then blood pressure is down, I fix it. Too slow, I fix it. Heart rate is too fast, I fix it. And that doesn't make them better. And I go to the end of the equation. Because I know SVR can only be a few things, four things. Neurogenic shock, adrenal sepsis, and anaphylaxis. It's on the screen. It can be those four things. I can get that by history and exam. But it's not that. I'm in the middle. It's a cardiac output problem. Ultrasound. The force. Right? Kill Darth Vader. And then I have my differential. I know what I'm treating. And I'm not giving fluids when I shouldn't. I'm putting chest tubes in when I should or decompressing lungs. Follow? Okay. I have this is on my website. You can Google it. It's a UT slide as well. Exactly the case. Think about this 
stress to give the dog rabbits a chance to work. Can you remember what you said? No, you'll have to play the stomach. Can I ask you a baby? Because they clutch it. Can we run the whole necessary procedures? But if we don't intubate now, you're making a big mistake. You step aside. Great. The failure was very related. We broke the SPT. And now she's in pulmonary edema. This was that your baby would have intubated her a long time ago. What do you guys watch ER? You know it's every single one. That's why you're sitting in this room. You guys remember this room? So Mark and Elizabeth are married. She's a surgeon. He's an ER doctor. And their baby, their older daughter, Rachel, is having some issues. And she's doing a lot of drugs and stuff. And when he walks in in that first scene, he's expecting to see Rachel. And he sees his brand new baby. So he freaks out. And I think if you're honest with yourself, that's what we do too. And I don't even, I don't really get anxious in most adult codes. When I walk in and see a child coding, even I do. I've been doing this for a few years now. So it's a very natural thing. And to have the parents in the room is great. I highly support it. But I want to use this scene to remind you, if they're interfering, they got to go. It's going to make it that much harder on the doctors. So you got to kindly, nicely get them out of the room. You cannot let them interfere with the code. Because every single second counts, usually when they're at that stage. We can debate the whole LASIK thing if that was necessary. Let's do some H's. It picks up now. I use this to remind you that almost everything that is related to hypoxia in a child during bronchiolitis season is related to the nose. Everything under two is an obligate nasal breather. They only know how to breathe through their nose. They do not know how to breathe through their mouth. They will do it for short periods of time, which is why when you put a bottle in their mouth, they stop feeding because they're like, I'm hungry, but I would rather survive. So I'm going to breathe through short periods through my mouth. They will do that. Breathe against their nose until they die. That's why we end up tubing a lot of them. So what is the cure for bronchiolitis? Suction and breathing. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb, and Marion Galshiel, I don't know if you guys know her. She's a fairly big name in pediatric medicine. medicine. We're about to write the ASAP rebuttal to the AAP, because you may have heard we're not giving albuterol, we're not giving epi, we're not giving anything else anymore. And that's crazy, personally. So if anyone responds, then I would give it. I at least try it. It doesn't hurt. No one's heart, head, or lungs are going to explode from giving albuterol. Uses just a little, little bit more on this. Here's the here's the, the method to the madness. They think they, the royal they, think about 25% respond. As the AAP has left it, you suction, you score, suction, score, and make a disposition. So I have a baby who comes in an extremis. I suction them and they get no better. I can do one of three things. I can discharge, I can admit, or I can intubate. Huh? What? Oh! I'm suction, and I'm gonna try other things that don't hurt. And see if I can change that tube, because that tube has morbidity and mortality associated with this one, in my opinion. So here's an example. I'm going to take that kid home. Right? That's what they do. Or this one. That's one of my favorites. I love you. These are not my children. Let's do another case. Very similar. Apnet. Unresponsive. 30 seconds. A little blue. Shots 48. Everything's pretty similar. That's the point. Right? They all present undifferentiated. They're all very similar. What is this, by definition? Yeah, an ulti. It's an ulti. This is how he looks now. That's how he looked in the EMS rig, and now he looks like that. So what should we do? Set him home, right? No. Why? Why am I going to keep him? 
if you need to assume. You need to assume it's a heart region, 1 in 500, until proven otherwise. How do we prove otherwise? Alter, alter an echo. Do you do the echo? Sure. Is your echo good enough to sign off? No. So you get cardiology to do it. Is an EKG sensitive? No. 80% of the time, maybe. Maybe. This is 1 in 5. What Parkinson's, Brugadas, long QTs. Things you're interested in that make kids sick. So here's the definition. Really 20 seconds with color change, 30 seconds without. Don't, don't edge on the side of being liberal with this. If you think you should admit them, 23 hours, you guys admit for less than that. They won't drink you admit them. So if you really aren't sure, just bring them in. Here's a myth. People like to say that vomiting, you have a baby who spits up and turns blue. Well, that was why they turned blue. They just reflux, right? Yeah, I love it. Dora's going to get it. <laughs> I love it when Dora gets on the loop, so you guys can watch it over and over. Actually, when you look at the studies of babies they brought in with these events, put a pH probe in them, the reflux follows the apneic event 30% of the time. 30% of the time when you suspect that the lesion's actually there. Okay, I'm interested. Now, don't get me wrong. My little girl, day two of life, I'm feeding her. Fountain like Dora goes way up and right back in her airway, and she turns blue from head to toe. I'm still in the hospital. I go, Wah! like a football husband. And I carry her to the NICU when we suction her. I have a little EKG on that. She does it again a week later. Find her in her crib. Now we get admitted. We go back to Texas Children's Life and Science, get admitted, spend like five grand to find out it was just reflux. But 30% of the time in that subgroup, I would have been right to admit her, right? So those are good numbers. I would keep them. All right, next is dun, 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 endocrine emergencies. Don't go to sleep on me here. We're going to make it as interesting as possible. There's only three you need to know. Thyroid, pancreas, and adrenal glands. So what is this? I'll give you a hint. There's the hint in the center. What do you think? Hypo? Yeah, hypothyroid. What do you, what's the uh, layman's term for this? Cretinism, right? This is a picture by Jean-Louis Barret who was a first dermatologist. He was the doctor to King Charles in the late 1700s. And he drew this, and he called them Cretans. And Cretan was a Christian greeting back then. So it was to remind people to be nice to these people. Unfortunately, time matters. If you don't make this diagnosis of a child that doesn't look right, big tongue, frontal bossing, not eating well, it's degrees of losing. Mental retardation from about two weeks on. So do the head-to-toe. Anyone who can't pee needs a head-to-toe exam. Hypothyroid. <clears throat> what about this? Neonatal graves. How did they get that? What do you think? Mom has graves, right? So then the thyroid stimulating hormone receptor antibody crosses the placenta and gives the baby graves. Same, almost nearly the same presentation. It's always the same. Child, children have five jobs. Do you know those jobs? Eat, sleep, pee, poop, repeat. Every job. Jobs to grow and breathe oxygen. If something is wrong, it interrupts those. So when you have all five and they're not federal, you need to at least think about this list. All right, how do we treat it? Briefly, I just want to make sure you understand. Propanolol, if it's hyperthyroid, we're going to the heart rate. So I'm going to steroids, going to prevent T4 to T3 conversion. That's important. And then methimazole, instead of PTU, because there's liver failure in kids. Those are the three. And then we're going to give what? It's always on the boards. Begins with an iodine, right? So we're going to give iodine. That's the next thing. Oh, no. Because we're going to give iodine. Iodine we give to hypothyroid babies and we give it to hyperthyroid babies. You guys understand this? Scott just did it on a ship. You guys all listen to Scott? You 
just bailed if you didn't. I want you to leave your hands down. It's very important. You should totally, first 40 lectures, you should listen to those three times before you get out of residency. They are fantastic. So there's something called the Wolf-Chikoff uh, effect, where if you have a patient who's lacking in iodine, you give them iodine, it helps. Because they needed it. But if they're hyperthyroid, there's a mechanism in place, a feedback loop, that if you give them iodine, they recognize the hyperthyroid state and actually turns off. So you treat both with iodine. You need to remember to wait at least an hour, at least an hour to give that iodine after the other drugs. If you don't give them a panel in theory and the soluportep, then they can actually rev up. I'm not sure that that could actually happen. It's mostly case reports. Okay. All right, so the chili peppers almost got it right. Blood sugar sex magic is actually salt sugar sex magic, right? And you guys know this probably if you're still taking step one, the deeper you go, like the sweeter you go down. Right? Sweeter you go down. It's a good way to remember the hormones of the adrenal cortex. So I'm going to have zona glomerulosifasciculatic reticularis. I think that's going to be a step one thing. I just throw it in there for that. But you need to know that there's three hormones that we're going to be producing in the, in the adrenal gland. I'm sorry about this. We don't need that. Let's get rid of that. Okay, let's get rid of that. Okay, I can't get rid of it. So let's talk about just briefly what you need to know. Cholesterol is going to form aldosterone, salt, it's going to form cortisol, sugar, and testosterone. What happens in congenital adrenal hyperplasia is that they lose this, 21 hydroxylase. That is the important answer. If you see anything that's congenital adrenal hyperplasia, do a brain dump, don't even read the rest of the question, go down and look for 21 hydroxylase. That's what they're trying to have you figure out. So if it's blocked, you don't get salt. <laughs> Right? You can't make salt. I can't make salt. Salt and K are always inverse. Salt down, what's K? Up. Right? Can't make glucose. So they're hypoglycemic. And then they all get a little bit hyperurealized. So, testosterone spikes. So if they ask you, that's the answer. But more importantly, real life, do a head to toe. You gotta look under every baby's diaper until they're old enough to tell you what's under the diaper. And even then, your teenage boys and girls are not gonna tell you about their down there complaints. So you really need to press them and ask them. So you look for the baby that has a very large clitoris if it's a girl. And this is really my favorite. So if someone is approaching your child to do adult alternative movies, then they might have a general dream life All right? It's like you might be a redneck. Or if they need a bikini wax and they're shaving, but this is the other one that's more common to see. What do you do with this? I got a baby with boobs. Boobs? She's three days old. Why'd she have boobs? Question. Yeah, breast buds, right? Mom's estrogen. Is that a problem? Okay, no. In general, I agree. Go home. Even if they have a little milk, right? Which is milk. That's okay. But what if they have other signs of secondary urealization? Mmm. That's the one you need to think about looking up for the general adrenal hyperplasia. So if they come in needing a bikini wax, that's the one. Clitoromegaly, that's the one. So don't just write out all the rest of us. Do the whole exam. All right, let's talk a little bit about the pancreas. So children can get hypoglycemic, right? In the first six months, usually what you're going to see is something called persistent hyperinsulinemic hypoglycemia tendency. Why do children get that? What does mom have? Diabetes, right? She took insulin, and now they have an insulin cell-resistant 
and they're going to get that. It's pretty rare. But that would be one thing I would think about. So if I have a kid that comes in who's hypoglycemic and ketotic in the first six months, that's potentially normal. Kids can't store glycogen. They burn through it. That's their job. Eat, sleep, eat, loop, repeat. Remember? So they just burn glucose that they don't eat. So that's another reason they can get hypoglycemic in the first six months. They're not eating. But they should get ketotic. You cool with that? Okay, good. Because here's the next step. What if they don't get ketotic? They're like hypoglycemic and they got no ketones in their urine. What's that called? It's an important diagnosis to make. Yeah, that's MCAT. That's MCAT. That's the mitochondrial kid. MIT, right? Eat a metabolic console. After six months, usually type 1 diabetes. What is the numbers? Okay, this is debatable. 30, 35 in the first day. I'm not going to feed a kid at 30, not immediately. I'm going to put them on mom's breast and see if they can eat. And I'm going to repeat it in an hour. But 30, 35 is what most people say. After that, 40, 45 is hypoglycemia. How do we treat it? I love Mr. Fitty. Mr. Fitty, I'm a huge fan of your music. Can you imagine that conversation? All right. So I love this because it helps me remember. Everything in treatment should multiply up to 50. So for DNAs, we use D10 because glucose is very sclerotic. If you put T50 in a baby's arm, you will cut it off. Release the plastic surgery to fix the, fix the big escarp and extracts. So 10 times 5 cc's per kilo is 50, right? 25 times 2 for infants, 50. Adults, 50. It's kilos. Let's see what happens, right? Recheck the glucose. So that, that's the treatment. And I use D10 pretty much as long as I can until so it becomes a ridiculous volume. All right, stuff about metabolic. This is going to be brief. So I'm going to tell you, you guys have been lied to. You've been told there's something called a gap. And I think for the purposes of memorization, you should know this. There's gap, acidosis, which are almost all toxins, except uremia and DKA, really. And you know how to treat that and recognize that. And all your non-gap stuff, you can use whatever mnemonic you like. I like hard up. But you need to know it's almost always kidney or gut. Those are the two things causing it. Alright? So very easy if you can remember those two things. If you've been told there's this thing that's called a gap, which is almost all sodium for positive ions, a little bit of potassium, which you don't really need to count, and then bicarbon chloride make up the majority of the negative, and then there's this gap of 12, this mystery gap. Let's solve the mystery. There's the mystery. Right? That's what made up the gap. We used to not be able to measure any of these ions. Now you can can you measure all of those? Yes, we have a lab for all those. So do we need a gap anymore? No, and this guy Stewart thought this up, and he's up for a Nobel Prize for this. I hope he gets it, because he realized that I can now measure all these. The only thing I can't measure effectively is phosphates and sulfates, which is why your diabetic is acidotic. I mean, your uh, uremic patient's acidotic, right? Okay, so we can't measure that effectively. So that's only two points. So when we look at the numbers. If I were to draw the labs, I know that the kidney is the smartest organ in the body. It really is. It will do everything to stay euvolemic and neutral, pH neutral, until you get it with drugs and alcohol. That's what it does. It's its job. But it can't measure bicarb. That bullcrap or someone's told you that. It knows chloride. And it does everything by how much chloride it sees. So if you give a whole bunch of chloride to your septic patient, are they going to have a gap, I mean a non-gap acidosis? Yes, because it says, you just gave me all this negative ion. Dump the bicarb, dump the bicarb. It can dump bicarb, but it doesn't measure it very well. So that's what happens. So I know, and the kidney knows, that the difference between sodium and chloride is 38. It's 38, 38, 38. And it will keep it 38 no matter what you do to it, and it will try to do it. Until you do something that's so outlandish, it can't keep up anymore, and it will dump bicarb. So anything less than 38 is, by definition, a non-gap acidosis. Now, I don't have a million 
Uh, this would take about two hours to do, but I'm going to tell you, Weingart is fantastic. Right? We agree on that? We have a common agreement there. He has six lectures on acid base. They are the, and I work for Corey Slovis, and his acid base lectures are fantastic too. Scott's are the best I've ever heard. And when you understand this, you're going to understand that if I have a diabetic who's got a pH of 10, 12, and it's all non GAP, and I've given them their insulin and they're eating, they can go home. And you guys are counting, right? This is counting? Yes. I worked at County in Texas. I sent patients like that home all the time. Because all that chloride they got, they're just still acidotic from that. They have no gap. They've eaten two meals and got two insulin shots. Home you go. The kidney is smart. It will correct that non-gap acidosis. So Okay, so inborn errors. Let's do this briefly. It's always a problem with metabolizing sugar, protein, and fat. And now, don't go to sleep. Don't go to sleep. Okay, we definitely do not need this. I don't know how those guys walk around. You know the guys with the pocket protector still and the slide Those are metabolic guys. They still know that. I don't know how they know that. That's ridiculous. We don't need to know that. You need, so Corey Slovis. Has anyone heard Corey lecture? No worries. So you have to know five things. That's Corey's thing, right? So for me, it's three things. Five is too much. I have a little simple deal brain. I can't remember that. So three things is all you need to know. There's a problem with the urea cycle, the glycogen, or ammonia. So I, uh, or sorry, amino acid. I have a problem with ammonia, sugar, or acid. Those are the three things that I've got. So how am I going to figure that out? I need three tests. I need ammonia, I need glucose, and I need lactate. Those are my three things. And the treatment, it's four, but it's really three. I need to make them all MBO because whatever they're eating is poison. Let's just stop that for a second. I need to give them all some glucose, because I know they need glucose to run. And then carnitine and aminol, that's something you're going to call the guy with the pocket protector and the, and the slide rule, and ask them, is it a urea cycle disorder? Should I give it yes or no? So you really only need to know two things, MPO and sugar while you figure it out. So any baby that comes in that's really not white, that's a good time to not feed them. Get those three tests. Not the kid that's, you know, 27 days old, fever 102. You don't have to do this. But it's the undifferentiated kid. Three things. Ammonia, lactate, glucose. All right? Cool? Kosher? Yeah, we're good. All right. <coughs> Another case. Case number three. You guys, I think you're getting the idea now. Seizure, 30 minutes. Same vitals. Still a little blue. <coughs> what are we going to do with that? My computer is the best on earth. Unfortunately, not quite the best on earth. They usually have something else wrong, and that's the whole PGMRI. When I was a resident, I earned the title, instead of kill them all, I earned the title, tap them all, and let God sort it out. I love the tap. I know Newman, not here, is he? <laughs> okay. So Newman, I know, is kind of a little bit of a campaign against the tap for adult CTs, and I know Swami said, so I do adult emergency medicine, and I do peds emergency medicine. So I do both. I train an adult first. When I was a resident and an adult, I used to tap everyone who could possibly tap because it's nearly a perfect test. Very good sensitivity. Specificity is pretty good too. The worst thing that happens is you get a bloody tap and you do more. Rarely misses an infection. Rarely misses an infection. So when the test is that good, I have a hard time not doing it. Now in seizures, we want to know, sorry, in seizures we want to know, really, we really want to know, is there a chance of infection if they're under a year? So a lot of the, uh, the neurologists are going to tell you you got to tap everyone under a year. I think that's probably crazy. Probably 
should follow the exact same guidelines as anything else that's fever of unknown source. I would give them up to the point that they're not completely vaccinated. When are they completely vaccinated? For purposes of immunization, IgM, IgG stuff. Six months, right? So I give them up to six months. Over a year, it's obviously not clinic, they're obviously not clinically infected. I have a hard time with that. I got messages for all of them, right? Shake and bite. What's that? Does that blow your mind? That just happened. What is that? Catchphrase or is that uh, epilepsy? Shake and bite. What? Shake and bite. Oh. Shake and bite. Yes. <laughs> what does that say? It's no sense. So shake and bite is nonsense. I get a test that begins in E. What's that test? EKG, right? EKG. They look the same. One in 500 cases are cardiac. Seizure's not going to kill it. Cardiac lesion is. What's that? Bundle right. You got it. So it's worth the test. It's worth the piece of paper. You guys do EKG on topane. I know you do, because we do. Everyone does. So it's worth the test. I would at least take a look if you think you have a seizure patient. And here's the reason. If it is cardiac, there are there are 13 causes of cardiac sudden cardiac death. I just did a podcast on this if you really want the more complete. But I believe WPW got a long QT and arrhythmogenic right ventricle. Arrhythmogenic right ventricle is something I get. Swami gets. You gotta be get pushing 40. <laughs> you gotta be pushing 40 to get that. So the right ventricle turns to fat, you get a complete right bundle, and you get ST elevation one, two, three with big, deep, well in like QH. You're not gonna see that in peace population. So they get into, it could happen in their 20s, but unlikely. There are three structural, aortic stenosis, holcomitis, that's whatever you guys are calling, but any cardiomyopathy can do it. So anything wrong with the structure of the heart. And that's like cardiac kids, I see anyone who's had a cardiac surgery, if you have a ventricular scar, that is a focus for VTAC. Because syncope is really, I'm walking along, I'm dead, because I'm in VTAC, and then I pop out of VTAC, I'm alive, alive, great, alive. Or I don't, and I'm dead. Right? That's syncope. Seizure is I seize, and then I'm post-dictal, and I'm at pee and vomit and stuff, and I'm sleeping for 20, 30 minutes. So you might be able to get it from history, but if it's at all ambiguous, this could be EKG. Alright, and then the others. So let's like you a kid. So my last MI was two shifts ago, 19-year-old female. 19-year-old female with a posterior wall and five. MI, PE, sue death, sudden unexplained death and epilepsy. That's what they think happened to John Travolta's kid. No one knows, they weren't really, it wasn't witness, but he had a book for a while. So what happens is you seize and you check out. You seize, you go into VTAC and you die. You don't seize and get hypoxic and die. You seize and you go into VTAC and die. Very rare, but on the list. Commercial course, you all know what that is? That's good. Boom, ball, right to the center of the chest. The last guy to die, that was a pro baseball player. Right on the upstroke of the arm, put you in VTAC. Again, these are history things. Puffer's intact or CPVT, so catecholamine, polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, is I'm huffing or doing something else to get my catecholes. Some kids, you can just scare them into this. You can go, <coughs> see? You just uh, hit him on the chest, get him out of his intact. It's kind of funny. There's a few cases in the Texas children, you can just boom, and then go down, and then pop back down. Nobody actually Pulmonary artery hypertension is at risk. How do I deal with seizures? I'm going to tell you my list is a little different than most. I like that one. Love it. Love the diazepam. Why do I love it? 
Because I know at five minutes, it's at its max solid effect. Peak at 15, max solid at five. So if I'm going to stack drugs, I can get the album value and know where I'm at. Am I getting sleepy or not? Because the first time that I, when I hear a seizure call, what do I do? Do I run to the bed? Seizure! Or do I put my hands in my pocket and slow walk to the bed? Choice two, right? Because the drugs don't break the seizure. 99% of the time, the drugs do not break the seizure. The seizure breaks itself. The drugs prevent the next seizure, potentially. So I don't really want to push drugs if I don't have to. I don't have time to make that decision. What they really need is oxygen. You know, get hypoxic. You don't lose any brain cells. Don't lose high school. Don't wear a seizure, right? That's kind of important. High school was important. I hated high school. Last time I got beat up. So I'm going to do Dizer and Dizer and then FOS, so Cerebex. You guys have Cerebex, phosphatidine? Because I know through there, I'm not sleeping. This looks like a Rastafarian flag, but it's not. This is a safety thing. Green, yellow, red. When I get to the yellow, if I fail, and there's still season, I'm pushing Phenobarbital Keppra. Now I can't combine enough drugs. I might be getting here. Might be a little sleepy sleepy. Might be needing a tubey tubey. Okay? So that's, that's why I like this algorithm. I know I'm safe to the value. Cerebex are probably safe too. They're not going to get that sleepy. Once I start going on to a third drug, I'm definitely thinking I need to have all my airway stuff out. I already did. And then down here, I know if I'm going there, I need, it. I need my airway stuff. I think that all the drugs work. You should read Ryan Rodesky's page. I think he changed his name back to Rodesky. Rodesky, Rodesky. He's always, he's always changing it. So his page, he's gone through all the seizure meds. They probably all work, is my opinion. Ativan may be the best. Said maybe the best, value maybe the best. I don't know. Everyone says they're the best. So you pick one you like. I just like to know what I'm going to do. And I don't think the drug makes that big a difference. All right. Feeding mishaps. What does it compute? What do you think your parents can do to cause problems in the DNA? There's a hint on the page. Yeah, they water down the formula because they don't have enough. You know, they're kind of poor and they can't afford it, so they think they can stretch it. Or grandmother says, that baby needs water. Give that baby water. Why do you give the baby water? There's no water. No, they don't need water. Formula is what it says. It's in the word. It's eponymous. Formula. It's the perfect formula for the kid. If you mess with it, the sodium is going to go up and down. And then they're going to do what? Shake it face. They're both girls. you got to love it, right? So that's what they're going to do. So it's worth the sodium if it's undifferentiated. You're going to need that anyway. All right. Next. I. Last. We're getting really close to the end here. Testable disasters. These are the ones you think about. Who knows the rule of twos? <coughs> Just by show of hands, I promise I won't call on you. If you haven't heard, I kind of like to talk myself. I'm selfish on that. I don't call people. It's all the Socratic. You know the so so Socratic method of teaching? Like he asked questions, but he didn't really care what your answer was. He just used that to get you stimulated, and then he told you the answer. So sorry, I'm a little selfish that way. So the rule of twos. What's it apply to? No. Isn't that what we need to know? No. We don't care about that. Because what we care about is these twos. In the first two weeks, you're likely to see neck. In the next two months, you're likely to see... Yeah, but probably in the first month. And then in the first two years, into susception, right? So that's kind of where you're looking for it. And those are the three most important things to remember when they're really young that you can mess up and send home. Of course, the message might outgrow. I'm going to check in. They ask the most insulting question when you check your husband. What seems to be the problem? 
will see it. Well, it seems. <laughs> it seems like everything on my inside wants to be on the outside. <laughs> but I'm no doctor. Okay, let's talk about one of these, intussusception. If the board's question is coming, what they want to add, know is the intussusceptum is going inside the intussusceptions. Intussusceptions is the receptor. I don't think you guys need to know that. That's something they ask me on my painful, and you guys probably on your painful ridiculous pen board. So I'm going to tell you, pen boards were harder than talk boards. They really were. Uh, did you guys, you guys take both, or you just So I mean, I've taken other little patients, little tests. It's not until they're ridiculous they are. I'm not sure about that. So here's, the, here's what they're going to tell you. I did pass. Uh, they're going to tell you that this is this triad that you're always going to see, blood and colic and vomit. Who's going to see that? Nobody has those three things. I don't think I've seen that in 15 years of doing this. But they, what do they all have? It's the one time you should use the L word. They're lethargic, right? They really are. They're like really just worn out. They're they have that phase drawing up the legs. That's really what you're looking for. Radiology is going to tell you you need an x-ray. You need an x-ray. That'd be my problem. Okay. You need an x-ray because they're going to tell you you can see crescent sign and target sign. Why do I need an x-ray to see that? So you guys are armed with the knowledge. Why do we get x-rays in intussusception? Is it for obstruction? No! Are we going to do this? I think we're going to do this on our map. So we'll do this completely. I'm going to tell you, two reasons you get it is it used to predict that it would be hard to reduce high-grade obstruction. And they said there might be a perf. Has there ever been a perf report in the literature? No. Do I care if there's high-grade obstruction? No. Because if I diagnose it with an ultrasound, they're going to shoot the x-ray anyway when they go to do the reduction. That's something we could do later. Why would I rate it in before that? So that makes no sense to me. I have a hard time understanding it. How do you do it? It's really simple. You can do it. All you need is your high-frequency probe. You do the football field, up the descending, over the transverse, down the, I'm sorry, ascending, then down the uh, descending, colon. That's what I used to teach. And what you're expecting to see going into the cecum is this, called the target sign, right? That's the small balance side of the one in the car. It's really easy to see. I used to tell everyone that's how you do it until I missed one. <clears throat> and why I missed one is I didn't look over the umbilicus. So I went up and over, and I sent over to neurology because I really believe they have it, and I think you should too. I wouldn't sign off on your ultrasound completely unless you're really, really good at it. Have radiology confirm it. And they said, yeah, it's a big disinception. And I was like, what? I said, yeah, it's right over the belly button. So what it happens is it's so big it pulled central. So I tell everyone to do that. And then just go across the belly button on the lower abdomen, because that's where it's going to be. But it's all the way up to the transverse colon, you get this, called pseudo-kidney. So it's pulled in, and it pulls the mesentery in the vessels, and it looks like a kidney on ultrasound, right? So you could see that, too. That's a really, really bad one. I'd like to thank Dr. Swami for providing this picture. He sits tanned out a little bit. What is this disease, and why is it up there? It's HSV, right? So if you have someone older than two, just usually it's just be, and they have that, and they have belly pain, that's worth the ultrasound. Usually it's still going to be iliobilial, which is not a big deal. They go home, but they could have ileocecal. So that would be the one I would check that, and probably check it here for protein. <coughs> See how the case finishes?
Basics of talks. It tells you exactly what the patients are doing. Are they fast? Are they slow? Are they paced? Are they really hypertensive? Cat scan. Are they really cold? Cools. Are they really hot? NASA, like a rocket taking off. And I'm glad to provide it with you. There's no need to belabor it. You're gonna talks is really just memorization. You memorize the toxidrome. You can memorize some specific. I said you're gonna memorize anything single on the boards. There's so much trauma and tox on there, major, major win. And I don't have it up if you memorize right now. Just email me at Vlad to say, how do we treat it? Disney or ISP, I got three kids. I have an excuse. Right? So gas is really fast. Right? And that's how I feel when we're treating kids with any kind of hypotension tachycardia. Like, give a lot of fluid, wait, don't get too much, get more fluids. I don't know how much to give. I do know how much to give. I want to give 20 per kilo, 20 per kilo, 20 per kilo, and put them into failure. How would I do that? You guys all know how to use the ultrasound. The ultrasound box, see what they're doing. IVC is really flat. They probably need a little more fluid. Heart is doing this. Wow, they need pressors. They need a lot. It's the same. It's the same. It's the same. It's the same. All right, you guys. I got eight crates of Epicac from one all on my tail. Now, whoever goes the longest without puking gets the last piece of pie in the fridge. Okay, here we go. How's everybody doing? Good. Good so far. All right. All right. Nothing yet. Cool. Cool. You know, I, I don't know if you guys had any of that pie already, but that is yeah. That is some tasty stuff. That's from the uh, bake sale at Lois. <laughs> 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 
Cysteine works fantastic. All the other antidotes, I would be thinking about the other things that you can do. Don't count on them working. They don't always. So what is the alternative? Booyah. Don't let a toxicologist tell you can't dialyze something. You can dialyze everything. The smaller the molecule, the better. The less protein bound, the better. But if they are going to die, should we try to dialyze them? Yes. We should try. It's a kid. Nothing kills a party like a pediatric resuscitation. You can live by that. All right? So you should try it. What's going to happen? They're going to die? They're already going to die. So give them a shot. Okay. This is the very end. This is kind of the part that most people like to hear about. What are we going to do with sepsis? That's the majority of what you're going to see, right? And when are we going to do it? That's all over the place. So let's start with this case. Nine-week-old, 103. It doesn't look bad. Pretty well appearing. What are you guys going to do? What's the workup? You're going to hit? You're going to discharge? I don't know. Let's figure it out. All right, so we're going to do some sepsis at the end intentionally because I don't want you to think of everything else first. One, two, three, four. Service. 
which includes the heart, the joint, the lung, the urine, the CNS, the abdomen, or the skin. It's in one of those places. A lot of those you can get just by history. If it's not an obvious source, then you should be doing the full workup. And otitis media does not count. You tell me you have otitis media in a three-month-old, let's say, I don't even think you saw the GX. I don't think it's possible. And it's usually the virus. Because other recs work. Antibiotics, if you're going to do an LP, so don't just give antibiotics. Chest x-ray, if there's any respiratory findings. Blood culture positive, you should admit, period. Let that thing grow for 96 hours and make sure it wasn't just them wiping their butt. I gave them a transient bacteremia. And pulse ox is the fifth vital sign, especially when you're trying to determine who needs to get a chest x-ray. But what I say is forget all that. Larry Barafi, three, four, it's, I don't care about that. Listen to her. She seems smart, right? I could trust her. Kind of hot. Yeah, these guys, yeah, that's who I'm going to trust if I decide I'm going to make vaccines, is they make really smart comments like this. Okay, the thing that has saved more lives in pediatric medicine in the last 2,000 years than anything else, including seatbelts, is vaccines. It's vaccines, it's vaccines. And unless the government gets crazy and wants to eliminate a bunch of people, they're probably safe. Okay? So the conspiracy theorists that we probably need to talk about. This is on my website. I'm going to tell you briefly. Everyone under 28 days, it's free. If you guys want it, it's there. Everyone under 28 days, tap them all. Let God sort them out. 28, 29 days to two months. This is the more conservative approach. I say you do everything. Tap them all. If it's all negative and they look awesome, you want to send them home, plus your mind, antibiotics, that's your call. If you don't feel comfortable, then just admit them. Now, the real trick is in that two to three month period. And that's what most people say. We'll do the urine and do the blood. The CDC is okay, the urine's okay, they just send them off. What's the median white count for someone with strep pneumo? 16. What's the upper limit of normal? 15. Okay. What's the median white count of someone with Neisseria meningitis? 13. Wait a second, that's in the range. So they look really sick, so we don't usually put them in the algorithm. But don't, if you believe, so Greg Henry, you guys know Greg Henry? One of the past presidents of ASAP. He's this older, I love him, but he's older <laughs> gentleman who has some strong opinions, and one is the white count is the last bastion of the clinically inept. I think it is. If you rely on a white count, you're going to miss some kids. You really are. So I would say, if you would all think they're sick, just tap them. They're two, tap them. They're sick, tap them. Don't debate it. Just lean towards tapping. Again, it's up there. So, for me, what I tend to do is I don't tap after six weeks if they look really good. I think I know what a kid that looks good looks like. If you don't feel comfortable, just tap up to two months. Two to three months, they look good to you. Do the blood and the urine, feel really good that they look good, and if it's both negative, you want to send them home, okay, fine. Pediatrician the next day, reliable family, that's great. If anything is positive, tap it. That's my recommendation. Just tap it. Slow and easy, just tap it, okay? So you know what you should do? You should just tap so let's go through it. Nine weeks. So we're in that gray area. We're over in six weeks. We're under two months. We got a fever of 103.4. What's your workup going to be? Probably that, right? Can we agree on that? Okay, so here's your numbers. Obviously, you don't have your culture back or your urine culture, but the urine, the white's negative. Kids' temperature's down. They're blowing bubbles at you. You're a little young, but you still have a social smile already. What are you going to do? I think that's fine. I think that's fine. I'd probably let it go. 
If you don't feel comfortable, you're gonna bow. Okay, cool. Same kid. Now that's the white count. Stop What do I do? What do I do? Tapple! That's right, a tapple. CSF's negative. What do I do? You're calm. You want to give them antibiotics, that's fine. Protect them from that, that bacteremia. Just make sure they have a pediatrician the next day. That's absolutely fine. Send them home, admit them. It's really your call at that point. But the CSF is negative, which is what you're really worried about missing. Because it's more than likely a urinary tract infection and bacteremia is almost never important. So, now this is your workup. What are you going to do? CSF is 10. That was the cutoff, remember? Doesn't matter. CSF's positive. I'm going to admit that. Rosefin or Cephatax, whatever you like. Rosefin gets a bad rap. It's probably seven days and under. It causes biliary sludging. You find this kid. All right, so this is the summary. Pretty much everything we talked about. But the real summary I want to tell you is that Swami is not going away. I don't think he is. He's not getting fired. Right? Not getting fired that he knows of. So he's going to be here for several years. So when you get out in Hoboken, that's a place. I'm told, yeah, across the river. So when you're out in Hoboken next year, or in a couple years, and you get a really sick kid, pick up the backbone. So I'd love to hear from you. Sorry I failed you a couple years ago, but I'm glad you graduated. I understand you have a sick kid. How can I help you? That's going to be the conversation you have. And he'll talk you through it. It doesn't, graduating doesn't mean it's all over for you guys, okay? There's always someone to call. And if you're really uncomfortable, transfer them to me. I'm Tennessee. And send them over to the Pete's Hospital. They'll be glad to take them. They would be really glad to take them, okay? Does that make sense? Okay, so right over five. I'm going to do five minutes on how I intubate. And then I'm going to let you guys all play with how I intubate. So I got really crazy because I decided that, that I was tired of patients. I decided that I hated.